This is Press Lounge. Here, you'll get an insight into the minds of people who are changing the world. Today, we're talking to Charles McBride, a self-described freelance activist who responded to, among many things, the Russian aggression against Ukraine by going over and helping on the ground. Let's dive in. So, why don't we start with you introducing yourself other than my friend Charlie, who stayed with my grandparents in Lviv and called me at at a very random hour of the night telling me that you're flying to Warsaw and you're going to stay at a hostel in Lviv during a mass migration of Ukrainian peoples. (laughs) So, um, what do you do, Charlie? (laughs) It was a loose plan. Um, My friend recently jokingly described me as a freelance humanitarian, which I've decided is is kind of an apt description. Um, but I have been working for the the better part of the last five, six years, both in my personal and professional life, on different types of advocacy work and making money when I need to. <laughs> Very rarely do those two go hand in hand. Um, so I've been... Um, a consultant. I've been a communications manager and a digital director for various nonprofits, and um, I I have my own creative consulting business, um, which is primarily focused on assisting nonprofits and the leaders of nonprofits in positioning them in whatever space they're trying to be a thought leader in. And then I am also the co-founder of Mission Kharkiv, which is a Kharkiv Ukraine-based NGO, and we deal predominantly with um, oncology and rheumatology uh, system in Ukraine and trying to ensure that people can get access to quality medication in a timely manner. Cool. (laughs) And uh, since we're talking about uh, the very scary word tanky today, what makes you qualified to talk about tankies, Charlie? Nothing makes me qualified to talk about anything, which is something that people don't really understand when they keep asking me to talk about stuff. But I have talked about tankies before. Um, I suppose I have a lot of experience talking to and about tankies um, from jobs that I worked in D.C. that involved different diaspora communities from Eastern Europe and from kind of the diaspora communities of groups that the Chinese Communist Party likes to go after. Um, So I would occasionally encounter this type of individual as an archetype. And I found it incredibly interesting that someone would feel the need to spend hours on the internet defending the legacy of regimes, individuals, policies um, that are pretty universally, you know, panned as evil (laughs) or exploitative um, or totalitarian. Because they are, they're not pandas. (laughs) Right, you know, but, and and of course there are both sidesing of every story is is a huge quality of the tanky, um, which I've come to realize. And it goes beyond mere like devil's advocate for the sake of argument and more, let's whitewash the reputations of some of history's worst actors. Um, And these people can tend to dominate some spaces on the internet, particularly in the online left. And that is predominantly where people have been encountering them. So what is a tanky? What's like your best, you know, elevator pitch for what a tanky is? A tanky is someone who confuses the ideology of leftism, of some combination of socialism, anarchism, communism, anarcho-communism, 
Marxism, Leninism, Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, or, or any of the many varieties of leftist um, ideology with certain attempts at implementing leftist ideology in the real world. And they feel like in order to defend the ideology and its merits, they have to defend certain regimes and their merits. This is most prevalent with Marxist-Leninists. So not all Marxist-Leninists are tankies, but all tankies are Marxist-Leninists. And it, yeah, um, <laughs> so Marxist-Leninists are, you know, for, the, for those who, who aren't already aware, a very particular flavor of leftist um, that believes that a vanguard party uh, should be responsible for the revolution. So essentially, the people cannot be trusted with democracy. They cannot be trusted to democratically decide that they're going to do a communism or a socialism. And so the only people who can do the communism and the socialism are these party cadres, you know, the enlightened initiated few, um, who ironically tend to mostly come out of the upper middle class, which is the very thing that these movements are trying to destroy. And... Examples of, you know, Marxist-Leninist movements would be obviously Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Um, you know, Mao and, and his party in China, although they ended up creating something that looked a little bit different and, um, and had an altogether different emphasis than the Leninists had. But mostly it is, it is the idea that a small cadre of individuals are the only ones who can be trusted to bring about any sort of revolution to the point where they doctrinally believe that you must oppress other leftist attempts at revolution because yours can be the only valid one. And that's where kind of the legacy of Marxist-Leninism comes um, in the modern day, where, you know, leftists who critique existing regimes who were at one time um, Marxist-Leninists in flavor or character uh, will be shut out and criticized by defenders of those regimes online because squashing leftist dissent um, is, a, is a pretty historically key part or aspect of Marxism-Leninism. Well, I find it interesting because I think that the people who always talk about how good these regimes are always say that at those examples that we have from the past, they're just failed attempts at implementing these regimes, yet they would never live in, say, North Korea, which I could argue is a communist dictatorship. Well, I'd like to push back a little bit on that here, because <laughs> I would say that is true with many Marxist-Leninists or many communists in general, or soft, you know, kind of intellectual communists. They will say, yes, these past regimes are a failure, um, and no, they probably wouldn't live there. I think that is different from a tanky who will pretty radically defend the existing Cuban regime, the existing Russian regime, the Yet existing still Chinese won't regime. Live there. <laughs> well, actually, sometimes they do. Um, have, there's, do you have examples? <laughs> yeah, so for a real-life modern example, you have this girl who got very popular on TikTok for talking about aspects of Soviet life, life in the Soviet Union, and she would often do so in costumes surrounded by icons of Lenin and, and all these various Soviet memorabilia. Um, and not a lot of people know that, that her husband actually did, was so convinced of this, you know, ideology that he went to go fight for the pro-Russian militias in Donbass. Um, so he was willing to take his ideology that far. And I think that's the difference between like a tanky and then a, a Marxist-Leninist or an intellectual communist in the U.S. who would like to 
might excuse some of the crimes of the Soviet Union, but would not be actively saying that that's it. It's a place that they would live or a place that they would do. Some people even do this with North Korea. Um, Lots of people do this with Cuba. Lots of people do it with China. Yeah, China, of course. But uh, this is actually, it's very interesting. I did not know that this that this girl's how they know who you're talking about because, you know, I think we're being pushed very similar content on TikTok. In TikTok. Right. Well, I mean, we used to be mutuals. I found some of her stuff quite interesting. And some of it was, I mean, this was back in 2020, 2021. Mm-hmm. Some of it was quite um, innocuous. You know, mm-hmm. it was just like, what was um, home life like in the Soviet Union? What kind of folk songs would people be singing around Mm -hmm. the fire? Or like what holiday traditions Mm -hmm. were celebrated? And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool and quaint. And I think it's interesting. Um, You know, I didn't really associate it with any sort of militancy. Um, Well, but there is also, I find it that when when people who didn't live through Soviet Union, like say my parents or grandparents or any of my friends' parents or grandparents, right, talk about the Soviet Union, it is always very romanticized. And it's like, oh, folk songs and dishes and stuff like that. Yeah, that's only... the propaganda posters with all the handsome yeah. young men <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> who definitely the... aren't gay. <laughs> yeah, but that's like the thing where, you know, these were just such few aspects of this life because most people were worked like really long hours, had to procreate families. Women had no rights. And right. these like, oh, folk songs in Soviet Union. What about bread lines? <laughs> what about lines for food? Yeah, I mean, there, there are bread lines and food lines in the United States. So I tend not to try and criticize the Soviet Union for those types of things, although there's plenty to criticize about it. Uh, it was a little different than it the is. bread lines and food lines in the United States. <laughs> One thing that I think is quite interesting is um, sort of, Often when the Soviet Union is romanticized, it's people who are from the Muscovite core. Oh, yeah. Who talk about, oh, well, this is so great. My grandparents had this experience. Very, very rarely are you talking to somebody from Irkutsk, you know, or or some... some, Kazakhstan or literally anywhere. Some peripheral area. Um, There were some some countries that frankly benefited greatly from being part of... Uh, of the, some of the Silk Road countries kind of benefited a lot from being in the Soviet Union because they got these infrastructure projects that turned them from kind of sort of nomadic, living off the land type people to, you know, centers of science and technology and everything. Others suffered immensely and were held back immensely as a result of it. But it's also, I think it's important to point out that countries might have benefited, but not the people in them, because the people in them usually were stripped of those resources. Well, that they wouldn't have themselves, to be fair, because there was no infrastructure, but also most of the people who would benefit greatly were the scientists that would be taken from Moscow or scientists that would be taken from bigger cities and then sent to work there. So the people in Armenia, for instance, were not benefiting from it that much. It's, you know... Yeah, some weren't somewhat. I mean, and this is the thing that I think a lot of tankies get quite mad when you point out, which is that the Soviet Union very quickly began to replicate the sort of um, bourgeois, you know, class structure of yeah. a Western liberal state. Yeah. Uh, in that there were some people who were given lots of opportunities and there were other people who were exploited for their resources. Yeah. It just, it was more obviously happening all inside the same structure where, yeah. you know, you would take intellectuals and, you know, spread them around various different capital cities. And then you'd have massive famines like the one in Ukraine. Um, You would have, you know, various types of ethnic persecution, religious persecution, etc. And and really very quickly, the Soviet Union, I mean, I don't need to lecture you on Soviet history, but it very quickly began to resemble the czarist state that it replaced um, in a very real way. And people have made that comparison. There's a book, and I can't remember the author, called In the Court of the Red Tsar. And uh, I think it was actually the inspiration for 
the graphic novel that became the film The Death of Stalin. And it talked yeah. about sort of how Stalin ended up replicating, you know, the way, utilizing the Russian Orthodox Church to spy yeah. on people yeah. and creating this inner circle where no one could be relied upon or trusted. Yeah. The, the, the nose the nose is like when you snitch on people yeah and people were in a constant state of like if you snitch on your neighbors to the government then you have a fa- you're in favor with the government so that makes you special right then you you would do that more and more sort of to gain favor we kind of see that in Florida today but you know <laughs> no I mean this is I mean again like I'm I'm not an advocate for the United States this way of doing things and I think when I'm going to um, oh, for sure can my Uh, I, so, someone very close to me recently told me that I shouldn't just wantonly lash out at the Soviet Union, um, mm-hmm. but I should be willing to engage, you know, meaningfully with it. And I think that is important. The Soviet Union did accomplish a lot of progressive things in some ways. Um, and in other ways, it was incredibly regressive. And I think one of the ways in which it was regressive was by ruthlessly stamping out many of the left progressive movements inside its own country. Or killing people in the sea. Like, my thing is that, like, I can't look at it from the way that you look at it because... It's so, quite personal, yeah. It's personal. It's also, like, I don't think any of its, like, quote-unquote accomplishments are, like, should be highlighted because it was a murderous empire. Right, but, I mean, I kind of <laughs> feel the same way about the United States and Great Britain in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, they're not actively murdering you right now. Yeah. So. so, like, a classic tanky <laughs> argument would be Yeah, I'm thinking of a particular meme which shows a guy with autism. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of a particular meme with a guy with like a really excited face. And it's <laughs> like when you accidentally remove seven or like 32 million people, um, but uh literacy rates go up. Because <laughs> that's always the thing when you talk to the tank, he's like, Yeah, but what about the literacy rates? And it's like, uh, what about the gulags? <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, I mean it's it, like it's important to point out that, you know, when you critique the Soviet Union, you need to be willing to take a hard look at what you're defending as well. And I, I do not make a pretense towards defending kind of what we have in the United States where we have a higher prison population than the Soviet Union had uh, under Brezhnev, you know? So it's like... Well, you never know how much I was reporting, to be honest. So there right. is that aspect. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not taking the United States into account, right? Like, I mean, you know, the United States, I have a lot of issues with the United States. Sorry, USAAS, thank you for the green card. <laughs> but I do have a, I take a lot of issue with how the U.S. runs things, I guess, like from being Ukrainian and having grown up in Ukraine and watching like Ukraine change and go through so many loops and stuff. I think yeah. that to me, like Soviet Union is just inexcusable in a lot of ways, because first of all, none of these countries wanted to be there because yeah, it's it was being non-consensual a, like, Soviet being Union. a communist regime is one of its issues. Right. But it was first and foremost an empire. Yeah, exactly. As in like. Cuba is bad, but Cuba is doing it in Cuba. <laughs> right. <laughs> While the Soviet Union, like Russia didn't do it in Russia. <laughs> yeah, Russia just, it, like, it exported. Took, yeah. And that was, and that's, you know, I mean, famously Stepan Bandera said about Bolshevism, you know, Russian communism. He says, we see this, he says, we are anti-Bolshevik, but we see this as a mask yeah. for just the, the classic Muscovite imperialist yeah. impulse, which is, yeah, I don't like Stepan Bandera, but I think that was a, a meaningful criticism, which a lot of the Eastern European countries, they didn't care what mask was yeah. used, whether it was the hammer and sickle. They cared what was behind it, which yeah. was Muscovite imperialism, which yeah. was a thousand years old, you which know, and, and something they were intimately familiar with. Brilliant. And it's also the reason which I don't think people on the left should utilize symbols like the hammer and sickle, regardless of how liberatory they might be in a place like South America or India or how they might be attached to figures like Thomas Sankara 
you know, who who was sort of a liberatory figure. There have been good things done under those symbols. I think there have been far many worse things done in the under those symbols. And it's I get symbol. flack for this in some circles, but I think if you wouldn't use a swastika, which was not initially a symbol of hate, mm-hmm. it was a symbol of Peace, very com- yeah, yeah. a complicated religious symbol. Yeah, um, still used in Japan today. Right. But it was sp- used there originally, so yeah, it's and it's, it's used yeah. by certain, um, you know, Hindu and Buddhist uh, religious movements in the same way that you wouldn't use that because of its historical associations. I don't really think people should use the hammer and sickle because of its historical. Yeah. And I think that feels intuitive to Eastern Europeans. Yeah. But um, it's like I see people wearing totes with hammers and sickles because it's like cool and retro and like, you know, whatever. And to me, it's like you're wearing a patch of genocide. Thank you. That's that's very traumatizing. Please take right. that off. <laughs> yeah. you know. But then for someone who grew up in, you know, Angola or in, yeah. in, in perhaps in Uruguay, that... That is something, or for instance, if you're a rural farmer in India, that might be a symbol that you associate with freedom in the same way that a, a religious adherent of, you know, certain sects of Buddhism might say the same thing about a swastika. Creator that we were originally talking about, I find it very comical and like satirical in a way because she converted to Islam and she defends the Soviet Union and she loves it so much. Yet as an Islamic woman in the Soviet Union, she would have had some of the hardest fate that a person could have in the Soviet Union because any religion like that would be prosecuted and she would not be taken seriously and she would have very few rights and she would be taken as a minority. So it's it's the same thing with all the LGBTQ people. Oh my God, that like, are like, drives me crazy. Yeah, who are like Soviet, you know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> and this is, here's the thing, like there were ways in which the Soviet Union or places like Cuba, et cetera, were more progressive for certain aspects of women's rights, women's freedom, there are other ways in which they were incredibly regressive. I'll ask you to name a few progressive things for the audience, and I'm also going to react to them. <laughs> okay. Well, so but let me let me wind that back to an important point, which is that one thing that not a lot of people are willing to admit is, you know, if the Soviet Union, if China, if Cuba, if these movements were so progressive, if they were so liberatory, mm-hmm. then why is it that the biggest advances in things like LGBTQ rights Mm -hmm. come out of the Western liberal democracies. And there are really, really funny stories. I'm thinking about one now. If I was a tanky, I'd tell you it's because you know that communism was not implemented right. Right. Well, I mean... (laughs) That's why. (laughs) You know, if we had communism implemented right... (laughs) I'm not a a tanky. And I also (laughs) believe that. But I also have a different version of what communism is than most tankies do. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I genuinely think that like the Soviet Union represented nothing about what Marx wanted. Um, and I think it was not, it was not a, a flowering of, of, of Marxist ideology. I think it was the antithesis of it. I think socialism died in the Soviet Union as soon as the Bolsheviks stormed the Winter Palace as soon as Lenin said, hey, we're about, we're not instituting socialism, we're actually instituting state capitalism. Mm-hmm. And we're going to, we've secured the state. Um, and so now we can, we have, we're going into war communism and we must secure our borders and everything. And we're going to have capitalism. We're going to have a monetary system and everything. The Marxist Leninists were really afraid that you might skip some steps on the way to communism. Mm-hmm. Whereas the anarchists were just like, hey, we're a commune now. This is communism. And the mm-hmm. Marxist Leninists like, no, you have to go through all these steps and we will kill you if you don't go through them. So, I mean, 
you don't have to be a tanky to say that thinking about communism, now, you know, Soviet communism does not look a lot like what Marx envisioned. Um, I think a lot of people who aren't tankies believe that. But the tankies see what Lenin and, and Stalin uh, and Mao did, and they don't necessarily see a problem with that. And whatever problems they do see, they try and explain away through the whataboutism or just some really complicated mental gymnastics. It always reminds me of like people who wanted to send you all of those links about the COVID vaccine or like masking or like the World Economic Forum during COVID. And like all these really, and they would find some scientist who said something about the COVID vaccine and they would send you like an essay about it. And you're like, why are you sending me such technical scientific information, but then rejecting the scientific consensus on whatever this is? That's what the tanky does with history. Yeah. They find some guy, some historian Mm -hmm. at some university who is willing to say, it's all CIA lies. The Soviet Union never did this. The Holodomor is fake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they find another one who says the same thing. And they patch that together into this quilt of like pro-Soviet ideology which they can then say, you know, they're being suppressed and the academics are being suppressed because of the Western liberal mm-hmm. hegemony, um, which again, there's some validity to that criticism again, but it's it's the same kind of weird patchwork. It's like, you're you're saying this, but you're actually like, you're, you're getting really into the history and then rejecting mm-hmm. the historical consensus on this point. Yeah, because they kind of take the events. It's kind of like propaganda. Well, it is propaganda, right? Because you take something that actually happened, but you twist it in a way that works for you. And that's how the best propaganda functions, because you take things that you can prove, but then their meaning is twisted. Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, when it comes to the Holodomor stuff, it's really interesting because something about when it comes to Holocaust deniers, there's a very interesting phenomenon where if you really get into it with them, Mm -hmm. there's kind of this attitude where they're like, it didn't happen, but I wish it did. Or it would have been justified if it did. And I feel like a lot of the hardcore tankies get that way of the Holodomor. They first of all deny that there was, you know, Mm -hmm. a man-made famine. Yeah. And then they say, but even if there was, the Kulaks deserved it. And they should have killed more. And it's just like, okay, guys, I mean, which is it? Well, with with Holodomor, it's also, we actually talked about it the other day because we went to the Museum of Holodomor. Yeah. Which is phenomenal, honestly. Like, I'm so happy my dad suggested that I go there because... A lot of really interesting new like monuments and new memorials and stuff have opened up in Kyiv in the past eight years that I haven't been here that I wouldn't have even known to go there. But the Holodomor Museum is awesome. It's one room and they're adding another part to it, but it's it's a lot of history in that one room. And um, it's um, it's really interesting because, you know, with the Holocaust, you have Auschwitz, you have locations where you can prove that this happened, Right. With Holodomor, the reason why so many countries like denied it and denied that it was a genocide and wouldn't like, you know, wouldn't announce it as a genocide in their parliaments is because like, but where did that happen? You know, there is like no physical location that you can go to and be like, tons of people died here. Right. The the memorials are people. Yeah. The survivors and their stories. I mean, a mutual friend of ours uh, who we have in common, who will remain nameless, who we both care about deeply. Um is the descendant of the only survivor of the Holodomor in her family. Yeah. And that motivates you. Yeah. That shapes your outlook. That shapes your attitude towards Russia, for sure. Yeah. Um, and it's it's also, you have to be the one to keep that memory alive. 
Yeah. You have to be the one who's willing to educate and, and do that. And, you know, in many ways there, there aren't the, because the Soviet Union didn't get liberated. Yeah. There, there, there weren't just mountains of evidence left behind yeah. to, to prove it. Instead, you have basically yeah. seven years of also the, hiding, bulldozing, everything. All this, all this cultural erasure we're seeing now with Russia. You know, yeah. it's just, well, to be honest, I feel like, you know, if, if at some point Russian Empire actually falls because you can, no one can convince me that it didn't because it didn't. It just renamed itself to Soviet Union and then to the Russian Federation, but it's still an empire. Um, if you get to like far remote areas where gulags were a thing, at some point people are going to discover a lot of remains of people that were just shipped there to just be dumped or people who were killed off there. And you will have a physical memorial and a physical place where you can see that evidence. Uh, yes, but every time groups like Memorial actually do that, they get in a lot of trouble or the government comes back in and releases the evidence just bulldozes yeah. it or, or, or prevents the excavation. I mean, there was this narrow window where between like 1999 and 2008, certain groups, narrow window where certain groups like Memorial mm-hmm. were able to go and begin documenting the crimes of the Soviet Union. Yes. And even Putin was actually open to that at first. And then he realized that it was better for the Russian state to deny those crimes. Yeah. And he started shutting down those organizations and those efforts. Yeah. Um, re-erecting, building new monuments to Lenin yeah. and to Stalin. They're still building it today. Yeah. There was just one that went up to Stalin, which is insane, like literally two weeks ago. Yeah. It was a whole unveiling and there was a parade and whatnot. It's, ah, <laughs> yeah. insane. I genuinely, I was watching it and it was just so surreal because it feels like the Soviet Union. I mean, if you've ever, have you ever been to Brighton Beach in the United States and uh, New York? So there is this, uh, area that was originally a Ukrainian Jewish area from Odessa. It was called Little Odessa. And then Russians started migrating and they kind of now it's like the Russian area of New York. And a lot of these people moved right after the Soviet Union collapsed. No one speaks English. Um, It's kind of the Soviet Union because basically all of the former Soviet people have moved there when the Soviet Union collapsed. And then also now the new people that move there are just like Ukrainians or Russians or whoever who want a cheap who want cheap housing where you don't need to like speak fluent English and then yeah. they kind of figure it out and they either get out of there or don't. But so there is a very specific accent where if you were born in Brighton Beach, I can tell you were born in Brighton Beach really? because you have like this Russian twink to your <laughs> American accent. I don't and think twink is the word you're looking <laughs> Well, for. Like tw- twinkle, I don't know. Twang. In twang, twang. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. Twink is something very different. Okay, well, you have this Russian twang <laughs> yeah. to your super American accent. And it, it sounds bizarre because you can really tell that this person is from Brighton Beach. <laughs> and when you walk around there, there are groceries and there are things in stores that I have literally not seen in Ukraine since like the early 2000s. That's wild. They don't exist. Literally everything looks like the USSR. It's like a time capsule. Yes. And it's a really bad time capsule. And it's funny because my American friends will go there and they're like, this is so cool. Russian food, Ukrainian food. Like, oh my gosh, this is like just like Eastern Europe. And then I will go there. My mom went there and she immediately turned 180 and was like, I don't want to be here. (laughs) Traumatizing. And my grandmother was like, this is awful. I really don't want to be here. It's like... It, it's the same when like, I don't know, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that people who haven't been here realize how integrated into the 
Western liberal world Ukraine really is. I mean, case in point, sitting in this brand new like cafe today that could have been opened in Brooklyn. Uh, and they were playing Morgan Wallen on the radio. And uh, of course, that was terrible and it made me regret globalism. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's just... I mean, it's... Kiev is a modern city. All right, you know what we're going to do? We're going we're gonna to talk about how does one become a tanky? So why would a kid who was born and raised in the United States, right who has access to all of these modern goods and who has access to, I guess, democracy and stuff, just decide to defend these ideas. Sure, yeah. Let's let's bifurcate this definition again real quick because I think there's two different types of tankies we could talk about. One is someone who's born in a, you know, terrible term, I don't like it, but global South country who um, has historically been exploited by things like multinational corporations, American corporations, They've been victims of the United States sphere of influence or mm-hmm. Israel's sphere of influence or India's sphere, you know, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And they are naturally prone to be defenders of kind of the anti-liberal axis. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether that is, you know, Cuba or Venezuela or the Soviet Union or Russia or China, their experience is so anti-United States that they are kind of just like reactionarily pro. This is why you'll go to, you know, Brazil or Colombia or something like that. And you can, it's quite common to encounter someone whose view on the war in Ukraine is that, you know, well, it's a NATO versus Russia thing. Russia's defending encroachments on its homeland from, you know, this vastly powerful sinister organization. Um, So that's kind of one type. And then you have the specifically online type that we have encountered, which is quite often someone who lives in Britain, France, Mm -hmm. the Netherlands, uh, or the United States, um, in the heart of, you know, Mm -hmm. Western liberal order. (laughs) And um, they religiously defend these regimes. So they're coming out of a a Western liberal context. And I think where this person comes from, because it's it's not really like the old... 1930s, 1940s defenders of the Soviet mm-hmm. Union, which were typically Marxist intellectuals who didn't want to admit how bad things really were in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically after the invasion of Czechoslovakia, even the French Communist Party collapses and all the French intellectuals say, all right, you know what? We were wrong. Um, the British intellectuals split into two. The leftists who condemned the Soviet Union and parted ways with the Soviet bloc as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And then the ones who approves of the tanks being rolled into Czechoslovakia, which is where we get the term tanky. Yeah. So those on that side of parliament or those British intellectuals, they were referred to as tankies, very British term. But the modern version of that is typically someone who often from a very young age is very disillusioned with modern Western liberal democracy because often it's neither modern nor Western nor liberal nor democratic. (laughs) And you and I both know that, you know, when your country is racked by extreme wealth inequality, a complete lack of public infrastructure, um, a huge immigration crisis, an opioid crisis that's claiming the lives of more people every day, and, you know, you don't have access to health care, there is a strong tendency to want to look elsewhere for alternatives, uh, either in the past or outside of your borders. And that is kind of the environment in which the tanky is is formed. And often it starts as an intellectual fascination with the left, which, you know, as someone on the left, I understand how that works. I grew disillusioned and then, 
you know, found myself drifting left as I saw what I believe to be kind of a a conspiracy of complacency um, in American politics that we were just going to allow the wealthy and the powerful to continue taking the lion's share of everything. So it often starts that way. And then you begin to pick up, you know, Confederates, comrades, people who agree with you. You go online for forums, you search various things, you find people who are opposed to this thing that you have decided you do not like, which is modern Western liberal democracy. And you might start with something mild. You might start with like Noam Chomsky. You might start with, you know, a lot of people, Bernie Sanders was kind of the gateway into this. He was the guy that, you know, Bernie Sanders is not a tanky. Neither is Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is a, is a, in many ways, he's, he's, a, he's a good leftist intellectual who's very quick to condemn, you know, the atrocities of the communist past. Well, he was uh, very interesting there on Ukraine for a second. He, he has terrible takes on Ukraine, as does, uh, as does, who's the guy who's running for president? Green Party. Yeah, Cornel West for president? is running for president. It typically has great takes on like, you know, basically the fact that liberals and conservatives, at least, you know, all their kids go to the same schools. Yeah. They're basically in it for the money. You know, yeah. they, 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 they stoke these culture war fires so that yeah. people stop realizing that they're being robbed blind by both parties. Yeah. His takes on Ukraine are, are terrible. Um, and I can potentially forgive him that because most people have one or two things that they are just terrible. But it, it to me, <laughs> with both Dov Chomsky and with Cornell West, it, it indicates a lack of judgment, I think. Well, yeah, people who look for something better than the United States and start from something small, I suppose... When you don't have health care and you're broke and you live paycheck to paycheck, you go and you find out that there was universal health care in the Soviet Union. Right. But then you don't find out that it was taken out of your paycheck like everything else that was universal and you were getting the bare minimum of what you could have decided to spend your money on. And you were robbed blind behind the scenes, but it was presented to you as if you had all of these Right, yeah, all these yeah. benefits and everything. Because part of this, it wasn't communism. I mean, there were socialistic elements of the Soviet Union, but like a communist system would not have had a monetary system. You know, and it, yeah. it, it would have been, it looked different. And so this is the point that people reach when they've gone, they've seen their, they've done their Bryce Sanders and their Cornell West and their Noam Chomsky. I mean, most communists wouldn't want to support a president or run for president. So obviously yeah. Cornell West is not a communist in the traditional sense. So anyway, but people go down there and then this is kind of where they hit the fork in the road. Yeah. And they either continue with that critique, Mm -hmm. um, but they allow themselves to listen to kind of the anti-authoritarian left. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like you're going to convert a couple of people into communists through this podcast (laughs) unintentionally. I I don't want, I mean, I think, I I don't call myself, I don't call myself a communist because I think it's an incredibly loaded term. I think it has historical connotations that I don't want to be associated with. It's the same reason I don't advertise being a Christian because like also has a lot of terms that I don't want to be associated with. Um, you're like a critical Christian, which is like critical thinking Christian, where it's not just about like the label of Christianity, it's about your own kind of right. like what, what happens in your head. And it's about you and yeah, it's about you and what happens in your head. It's not about imposing things on other people that yeah. are in your head. Right. Which, I respect that a lot. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I, w- I would hope the same that goes for my political discourse as well. It's, if people are interested, I don't, I don't want to go too much into my own personal beliefs on things. If people are interested, can I can do a five-hour podcast on that next time. <laughs> people can Google Murray Bookchin um, or they can, they can Google Abdullah Achalan, who was the founder of the Kurdistan Liberation Party. 
And those two um, have an ideology uh, which is loosely based on Bookchin's kind of ecological anarchism, um, which is anti-authoritarian and anti-capitalist and is something very different from anything that they were trying to do in the Soviet Union. (laughs) Um, so that's, you know, I, I'm willing to critique those things. And I went down that path, the anti-authoritarian path. And part of that is because I was a history major and I understood that there is very little historical defense of a place like, you know, the Chinese Communist Party or the Soviet Union. And, um, some people don't necessarily get that, that privilege. They encounter this online leftist matrix and of this menu of options, Mm-hmm. They are faced with either you have this kind of loosey-goosey, hippie, anarchist, you know, side of it, yeah. which can be kind of cool, you know, whatever, but like <laughs> not a whole lot of historical examples yeah, that works, to yeah. pull from yeah. that being, you know, you've kind of got, you've got Nestor Magno in Ukraine, you have the Spanish Revolution. Magno. Yeah, Magno. <laughs> and... um and then you have the current Kurdish revolution. Well, not Kurdish. You have the you have the, the revolution in North and East Syria, which is sort of an ongoing anarchist experiment. But beyond that, you don't really have a lot of examples until you go deep into the past to like indigenous movements, Irish kings. The issue with that is, right, like you, so I'm going to draw an example from you, right? So you read a lot of philosophy, very evident. But like, here's the thing. I think that a lot of people go online and they read these things and they don't analyze them and they don't have critical like thinking about it, right? Because if you like an idea, you will advocate for every single person that said that liked this idea. So for instance, you like the idea of communism or socialism and you will go and defend every single communist or socialist or anyone who has tried to implement it, regardless of all the horrendous shit that they've done. I call it like sophomore year politics. Yeah. There's something so about these these tankies. That's the thing, like you can take from these ideas, you can draw from them, you can yeah. like them, you can want to implement them, but that doesn't mean that you go and you defend Stalin or Lenin, right? Like right. you might have liked this one aspect of what they did, but you critically understand that the person was horrible and there is no defense for them, right? Yeah. Someone like you understands that you are probably 0.000015 eternity percent of people. I don't know. I think there's a lot of people with that, the ability to critically think. I think a lot of those people just, they, they haven't spent a lot of time like uselessly wasting their life on leftist forums like I have or engaging with this discourse. It's a very specific set of reasons yeah, that I have engaged the with these people. Is that these people don't try to defend. Yeah, well, that's the thing. But the thing is, like, when someone defends the Soviet Union online to someone who's unfamiliar with the historical ramifications of that, it doesn't mean that they lack critical thinking skills. They just haven't encountered that particular form of toxicity before and don't necessarily know how to counter it. I, on the other hand, have spent far too long in the in the fever swamp of online leftist activity, um, which has informed my ability to be like, oh, that's one of them. That's that's who. That's what, you're about to get into something you really don't want to get into. So that's the thing. Yeah, you know, if you don't choose the the the, the loosey goosey anti-authoritarian leftist, then you tend to go for the historical Marxist-Leninist leftist regime. And see, if you if you haven't been basically if the, if it encounters you at an age that's quite young mm-hmm. or at a level of educational training that hasn't allowed you to think quite critically yeah. about some of these things, um, then it, it can it can very often, you're kind of a tanky for life. But I know some people who are smarter than me who are tankies. I mean, I, I, part of it is a moral decision to say, yeah. I'm so opposed to the United States, to Great Britain, to Israel. But that's the thing, like, I don't mean critical thinking in terms of like, oh, you are uh, not 
like you're not savvy enough to critically think, right? It's just more of like, I wouldn't even call it a moral decision. I think it takes a lot out of you to sort of form your own set of beliefs based on pulling and taking from different things that you like and dislike, right? It's easier to just kind of of fit a line, right? Yeah, like Marxist-Leninism offers you a fully baked ideology that you can just slot into. It's got its historical examples. It has its saints, it has its martyrs, it has its symbols. And you also have people that are willing to implement that ideology for you. Whereas like if you are pulling and drawing from different things and kind of forming your own world. (laughs) Yeah, you have to be your own person and you have to kind of analyze, okay, well, what's better for me in terms of like, I don't know, living in the United States and who to vote for. Right. Because none of these people really represent me, right? Yeah. But if you are a tanky, you have tankies (laughs) that are already there, you know? Well, and you have the glorious history of the Soviet Union and the Communist Party of China and the the revolution in Cuba and all that sort of stuff, which again, Cuba is a different matter than than the Soviet Union and China, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> anyway, so there's lots of nuance to this. The, his, the answer to every question of history is it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And with this one in particular. Um, so that's that's kind of how a tanky gets formed. <laughs> you know, he has said he wishes the war in Ukraine would end so that Ukrainians would stop suffering. And I've dug into that and basically I said, well, well how, do, how does that happen? I was like, it can end tomorrow if Russian forces decide to withdraw. Yeah. You know? Or it can end tomorrow if Ukraine succumbs, right? And like, yeah, but I was like, well, what people actually yeah. mean when they say that is is Ukrainian concessions. Yeah. And, and they mean, don't necessarily think that all the way through to its logical conclusion. Yeah. And or lack thing, of military action does not mean end of suffering. Yeah, exactly. It does not. I mean, you know, why would you trust the architects of Bucha to. <laughs> to 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 justly rule their newly conquered land, and that, that's the thing is, it's just I think people don't realize that Russia holds territory in Ukraine equivalent to the size of the United Kingdom, yeah, um, or that the ways in which they have been governing are reflective of a thousand year history of oppression um, yeah. towards their neighbor, and that and the other thing that they don't want to believe because yeah, everyone wants to, every tanky wants to believe there's this grand conspiracy between NATO and Zelensky and all this sort of stuff <laughs> like if Zelensky tried to give away Crimea to the Russians he would be dragged out of office tomorrow yeah. and that's what people don't understand is yeah. that what's preventing peace negotiations or whatever what's the, not, the end to the war is the fact that Ukrainians are not going to part with a single inch of yeah. territory because yeah. they're so fucking tired yeah, it's so of f- Russia being their neighborhood bully yeah I find it very comical when people say things like oh your president does this or your president does that it's like no my president represents me and what i want and what my neighbor wants and what my mom wants and my dad wants and everybody around me wants and the second he stops representing that he's literally going to be dragged out of the office i have not talked to a single ukrainian soldier or whatever who said that they're fighting for nato or willing to die for nato no one wants to die for nato but also there is a vivid example of a president not representing ukrainian people anymore and that's yanukovych he was literally almost dragged out of the office but he fled to russia there wasn't a coup (laughs) he fled he willingly just left and left behind lots of riches and a quite literal mansion that now is a museum of corruption because of gold toilets that have been found there and a lot of other ridiculous, ludicrous stuff. But that is a vivid example of what Ukrainians do when our democracy is not being implemented anymore or acknowledged. Yeah, and I think, I I honestly wish, you know, so it's interesting, there's there's an opportunity that may be coming up that would allow me to bring envoys from Global South countries to Ukraine. Oh. um, As a sort of diplomatic effort. And 
I think that that would actually be really cool to do with other people as well. So how do you reckon we sum it all up to like shake up everything we've learned today in our memory? Yeah, I guess. So my, my last word on the tanky thing is I'm actually probably more sympathetic towards these people than you are because I kind of understand the stew out of which they're spawned. Mm. And I understand why, like, you know, a gay kid from rural Alabama who feels incredibly impre- oppressed by his material conditions could find community and solidarity in a historico-political movement associated with something like the Soviet Union. So I don't actually, in my mind, that person is no worse than someone who's like super rah-rah United States. Yeah, like it's just kind of the same thing to me. Both are historically atrocious. Yeah, Historically atrocious, yeah. So I think there's a lot of people who get into the left for the right reasons and then they take the wrong fork in the road. So for people who might be kind of at that fork or maybe even a little bit down the wrong way, I think there's always time to kind of go back and you you find different heroes, you find different thought leaders and and take, you know, just in general, the anti-authoritarian path is usually the better one, um, no matter what, what other people tell you. Um, you know, for those people who are looking for a hero, you can come here and listen to Charlie because, you know, he seems to be all right. No, I'm no, I'm <laughs> definitely not. I I very intentionally try not to set myself up as any sort of uh, thought leader or figure um, because of my beliefs about, I mean, I grew up surrounded by authoritarians. Yeah. By people in positions of spiritual and political religious power who abused it. And um, that left lifelong impacts on uh, on people who are who, who grew up in those environs. And so I think if I have an agenda, if I have a creed, it's uh, that rebellion against an unjust authority needs to start with a rebellion against authority itself and the concentration of power. Yeah. So maybe take Charlie as an inspiration and don't listen to him. Exactly. You have to kill your heroes. So if you would like to go through the list of different names that we can call you, we'd like to invite you to be a contributor monthly on this podcast because, you know, I think there is a lot of topics that we could have branched out into, but probably do not have time anymore. Sure. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Great. So I guess we will hear from McBrisket. Oh, God. <laughs> when Should he, not have provided you with that information. When he's going to be on the menu next next month. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me on, Yulia. Yeah, thank you for coming over. All right. Double Oh, wow. Look at you. <laughs> That's it for today. This conversation is over, but there are many more to come. To ensure that we can keep publishing these interviews, please don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to our Substack to support our journalism, linked in the description. It really does help. And if you have any comments or suggestions, don't hesitate to email us at info at Otherwise, we'll talk next week. 